Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everyone. Hi. It is Wednesday night, and that means it's time for Friends in Fiction. It is our favorite night of the week, and we hope it is for you, too. As our beloved Mary Kay Andrews says, dinner can wait. It is time for Friends and Fiction. I am Patty Callahan Henry. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews, and dinner can wait, but wine cannot. <laughs> Good point. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey, and I'm actually having coffee, then wine. <laughs> That's a good combo. I, yeah, I'm right? Kristen Harmel, and I had to take steroids for my next chemotherapy treatment. So I am like wine. hopped up on steroids, so no need for wine. We're just going to let you run the show tonight. It'll be yeah. over in five minutes if you let me run it. Like bam, bam, okay. bam. Yeah. Then no, shush, shush. All right. This is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, librarians, and readers like you. Tonight is such an incredible show. We are hosting Marie Benedict to talk about her newest work of historical fiction that has been everywhere. It is called The Mitford Affair. And Eleanor Shearer will be joining for the after show to talk about her incredible debut, River Sing Me Home with one of the most beautiful covers I think I've ever seen. It is breathtaking. Yeah. I know. So settle in, grab your drink of choice or a bowl of popcorn, but not dinner because that can wait and get ready steroids. for a not great steroids. night. I don't recommend them. <laughs> you know, we have done unbelievably 155 shows and with over 110,000 members in, but our mission hasn't changed. We are here to bring you incredible authors, hot reads and fascinating interviews all while supporting indie bookstores. One way you can help us support ladies and indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or to visit our own Friends and Fiction bookshop.org page, where you can find Marie's and Eleanor's books and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. And we don't just interview authors here live on Wednesday nights. We also have a book club on a separate Facebook page called the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club with Brenda and Lisa. I know you've heard us talk about it. And of course, we have our Writer's Block podcast that drops every Friday. On our Facebook page, we will always post a link to our newest podcast episode, or you can find it on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. On our most recent Writer's Block episode, Ron and Meg talked to Susan Stokes Chapman about her novel, Pandora. And coming this Friday, Ron and Patty will talk to Kara Ruda about The Widow, a thriller set in the depths of DC politics. So listen, review, subscribe, and share with a friend if you like what you hear. Interviewing her, y'all, was really fascinating. You've got to listen to that episode. She tells DC stories. It's great. Ooh, her husband's a politician, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, he was a congressman. Yeah. yeah. And so she dove into what it was like to be a congressman's wife. 
it's she's got some inside scoop. That's awesome. Cool. I know. All right, ladies, let's introduce Marie. So Marie, as many of you know, is a friends and fiction favorite. She's the USA Today and New York Times bestselling author of several novels, including The Mystery of Mrs. Christie and Her Hidden Genius. Mm, those are so good. Yes. For more than 10 years, Marie was a lawyer until she decided to set out into the world of fiction writing. I almost said until she decided to set the world of fiction writing on fire, which would have been she better. I wish I had too. That. <laughs> Um, a masterful storyteller of many past novels, Marie now unearths the hidden and complex lives of courageous and fascinating women in history. Her novel, The Personal Librarian, was co-written with Victoria Christopher Murray and has been optioned for film with Al Roker Entertainment. Her newest novel, The Mitford Affair, explores the scandalous roles that three of the six Mitford sisters, Nancy, Unity, and Diana, played in the rise of World War II, both for and against the Nazis. In one family, for and against. Amazing. It's amazing. Alan, can you bring Marie on to join us? Hi, Hi Marie. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. I love you ladies so much. I, oh, I know. I just, we're so excited. I just love to be here with you. And I love to watch you and listen to you and, and be with you. Yay. Well, obviously, it's mutual, <laughs> and we are so thrilled to have you with us. Oh, and I'm we've so been talking excited. about it all week. We can't wait to talk to Marie about this book, and we've seen oh, you on God. the road, and how much people have been interested. We saw you in the Wall Street Journal. You've been everywhere. So you know, as I was reading this book, I was thinking so much about how often I have found fascinating, sometimes small, but always important pieces of history that I had no idea about, right? Mm -hmm. Like one little thing that turns the story we think we know upside down. And when I was reading The Mitford Affair, I texted our MKA thinking I had some scoop for her because we are both kind of into the Guinness family history. And I said, did you know that one of the Mitford sisters was married to a Guinness, thinking I was bringing Mary Kay some burning new fact? <laughs> and wah, wah, she already knew. Yeah. So <laughs> before we take a deep dive into this book, I'd love for all of us to talk about something we each discovered in historical fiction or any kind of fiction that set us back or turned the story we think we knew on its head. Mary Kay, has that happened to you? Yeah, so many times um, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit I had no idea of the vital role so many women played, for instance, in the intelligent community, intelligence community during World War II. And that's something I learned a lot about in Kate Quinn's The Rose Code. And of course, you know, too, going even back to um, Kristen Hanna's um, The Nightingale. Yeah. I think what happens is so often across the board, women's roles in history is downplayed. Yes. Gets lost so, in the yeah. shadows. Yeah. I did not know you were going to say that. And that is what I was going to say. I, I had no idea that there were like all these female spies during World War II. I really didn't until I started reading these amazing books. And then I was like, wow, I'm, how did I not know about this? Um, but also um, Christina McMorris's new book taught me so many oh, things I didn't yeah. know about you know, like the, the monopoly boards and the spy glasses, like all the, yeah. the little subtle tactics yeah. that people used um, during the war for like espionage or just survival or, you know, whatever it was. Very cool. 
It's it's crazy. You know, I feel like we there's so much about a period of history that we that wasn't that far uh, that far in the past that we don't know. You know what I mean? Like there's I feel like we're still unearthing so many new stones, so many new pieces of knowledge yep. about World War II. Um, for me, the one that, that came to mind first was that I just finished reading Hazel Gaynor's latest, which will be out in June. It's about the sinking of a British refugee ship with 100 children aboard. Most of the kids died. It was torpedoed by a um, by a German submarine, but one lifeboat with a handful of children aboard went floating on in the Atlantic. And you'll have to read her book to know whether or not the people on the lifeboat were saved or not. But I didn't know that that had happened. And it was just such an interesting piece of history. So I, I love that. I love that about historical fiction. Unbelievable. Like you, Marie. Oh my gosh. Well, obviously um, that's my jam. <laughs> it's <laughs> living in these like little corners of the past, but I, you know, there's definitely a lot of stuff in World War II, but if I had to pick one, I think I might say the thing, the book that I mentioned in your Friends in Fiction, that I wrote about in the Friends in Fiction newsletter, The Mists of Avalon. It was- um, Oh gosh, it's right there on my bookshelf. It's amazing. Oh my God, are you serious? Yes, that book is like- It's everything. It's like this, it's the, this pre, it's groundbreaking for its time. It's yes. a, an Arthur. It's the Arthurian legend told from the perspective of the women, and suddenly the same events um, told from the perspective of Guinevere and Morgan Le Fay instead of King Arthur and the swashbuckling knights of the Round Table. I chills. That's so good. <laughs> so different. I mentioned that book because that's the one that really started me on the path that I'm on today. I mean, it took me a long time and like seven thousand years as a lawyer to actually get to reading <laughs> about these women. But that was the book that opened up my eyes to the fact that there are so many women's voices, stories hidden yeah. in history that deserve to be unearthed. Because that, that for me was really so true. You know, when I was in when I was in um, elementary school, I used to read those biographies, you know, the library biographies. And the only time they were about women, they were about first ladies. Oh, that's oh, interesting. Or I was in elementary school in the 60s, but still, still, they were probably still in my elementary school in the 70s. Yes, yes right? same, same. I don't yep. think that changed until very recently. Yeah, I, I would say you're right. 15 years is probably when you start to see that shift. And even now, I mean, it's, it's still more. hard to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I loved, I've loved seeing it even in mythology with Circe and yeah. some of these books coming out about, uh, I just read a book for Blurb called Horses of Fire that is about the Trojan War from the women's point of view. Oh, I love uh, it. I know. But think of cool. all the stories told that have left us half out of, of it. Yeah. Well, let, left half the story out. Yeah. Absolutely. Or not more. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, we know it's usually more, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, but we're going to be honest talk about the myth repair. So, oh my God. <laughs> first, I want to tell you how much I love this book. And then I want to talk to you about these bright young things, a oh moniker that I am way past being able <laughs> to use. But in the Mitford Fair, we have three of the six Mitford sisters. I didn't know there were six. But three oh, of the six, and there's a brother in there, but. And, I always describe him as kind of like, oh, kind of a footnote. We got to just focus in on this. <laughs> yeah, we, we, he's mentioned. Yeah. But you say that they were the it girls, well-heeled, pedigreed, and they find themselves at the crossroads of war, fascism, and family during World War II in England. So if that's what the book is about, mm -hmm. our favorite question is, for you, what is it really 
about? Oh, gosh. For me, it's really about, um, I think, two questions. Um, because there's usually something going on with me personally or in the world around us that prompts me to choose one of the women on my list, right? Because I have a lot of women whose stories deserve to be told, who kind of make, make, make the cut on my list. And in this case, I, you know, we live in such a polarized world in terms of beliefs and politics, and it plays out with families so often. And I really just wanted to understand how people can arrive at some of the beliefs that they do, right? Not judging them one way or the other, just trying to understand how people come to believe what they believe. And then to really take a look at how those different belief systems can play out in families and choices that people make. And I had been aware of the Mitfords for some time. I'd read um, Nancy Mitford's stories, um, which are largely autobiographical. And, you know, I was sort of fascinated both with kind of the glitz and glamour and also the eccentricity of the Mitfords. Yeah, um, that's a good I, word. <laughs> oh, it, that, that might be an understatement, actually. Yeah. Uh, peculiarities might be better. But um, I, when I was researching another book, Lady Clementine, about Clementine Churchill's um, wife, uh, the Mitfords play a significant role. And I started to be reintroduced to them. And as I kind of dug into this story and found this unbelievable, mind-boggling array of activities and beliefs that these sisters uh, espoused, acted upon, it just felt so very familiar. And it seemed like a a really uh, ripe tableau to kind of explore some of the questions that, that I'd been thinking about myself. Yeah, it's awesome. That's so interesting. Um, you know, these sisters, like Patty said, are just so fascinating. And maybe since, you know, the beginning of time immemorial, sisters have dif differentiated themselves with like nicknames and adjectives, oh. like the witty one or the pretty one or the athletic one. So the Mitfords and their six daughters were not any different from the rest of us in this way. And you tell this story, as you said, from three of those sisters' points of view, leading to such fascinating insight into each of them. So you have Nancy, the novelist, Unity, the awkward one, and Diana, the beauty. So will you tell our listeners who haven't read the book about these sisters? Oh, absolutely. And, and I just want to, before I do, back it up by saying, I'm the oldest of six myself. And oh. I have... I didn't know that about you. You're not the Midfords. Full disclaimer. We have no crazy belief systems like that. But the, the, the question that you raised about how sisters, sibling relationships shape us as people, both our personalities, our belief systems, our, our beliefs about ourselves, all of those things were kind of another area that the Mitfords gave me so much material to work with. Um, so um, in this case, the, the Mitfords are, you know, these six beautiful, brilliant, eccentric it girls. Um, and these three sisters in particular claimed my attention because they all kind of get wrapped up in these really extreme political movements that kind of begin um, or, or that are taking hold, excuse me, in Great Britain at this time. Uh, Growing up, Nancy always told Unity that she was the unattractive one. 
So Unity, who I think is beautiful, believed that she was the unattractive one, right? And so she had this void within herself and she was trying to find ways to stand out. She wasn't the prettiest. She thought she wasn't the smartest. That was Nancy. Diana was the prettiest. Nancy was the smartest. What did that leave for Unity, right? And so I kind of felt like she had a void within her that made her want to rise up and claim something unusual to be her own. And believe it or not, as a young teenager, that thing was fascism. I mean, yeah, right? Like that's a normal, like some teenagers have pictures of rainbows on their walls, <laughs> like swastikas, portraits of Mussolini and Hitler. And in the bedroom she shared with Jessica, where she drew a line down the middle, Jessica, the, a younger, the next sister down after Unity, she decorated her half of the room with emblems of communism. Because if Unity was going to be a fascist, then by God, Jessica was going to be something different and she was going to pick um, communism. So it was such a great example of how these sisters formed their beliefs, formed their understandings of themselves and, and who they were in the world because of each other, not necessarily because those were beliefs that they themselves held. Mm, that is just so incredible. And that's so true too. You know, we really do like, even as adults, I mean, we, you know, our, our role becomes something slightly different depending on, you know, who we're with. So that's, yes. that's really fascinating. Um, so now that we know who the sisters are, this research, I cannot even imagine. So I guess it was fortunate that Nancy wrote novels and, and Unity wrote articles and maybe there's some personal letters. Maybe you could tell us about that, but Whoa. what did you find? And then how in the world did you think, okay, this is my core story. This is what I want to say. Wow. Um, okay. So the research, you know, I write about usually very unknown women from the past. So in this way, the Mitfords were a little bit different because they were so famous during their lifetime. I mean, yeah. there was one reviewer who recently said that they were like the Kardashians of the 1920s. Oh, wow. and 30s. oh so there's cool. a bazillion newspaper articles, accounts, but there's also what as like a historical fiction writer is usually like the golden ticket. And that is autobiographies with the exception of one of the sisters unity. Every single one of these sisters wrote one, if not multiple autobiographies oh. and they were prolific letter writers to each other and to others. And a lot of those, those records have been kept. So unlike a lot of the women I deal with, there was like an overabundance of information from original source material about these women. So, but here's the trick. These sisters were like the original PR spinners. So you had to kind of sift out what they said about their past. You know, Diana, without giving away too much, she needed to recast some of her actions in a more flattering light, right? <laughs> you think? So her autobiography wasn't exactly what I would call the God's honest truth. You know? <laughs> kind of had to sift through that. So all of that together, and, and the letters in particular were really helpful because those are a little bit more real time and a little bit less spinny. Um, those really helped me understand the characters and the timeline and the events that were happening. Um, and, you know, a lot of other things were happening than what I depicted in the story. But to me, with the themes I was interested in, I wanted to explore the way that Unity, who was already ripe for her interest in fascism, pairs with Diana, who leaves her Guinness, this is not a spoiler because it's page one, Guinness heir husband, who is handsome and loves her and is fabulously wealthy. And is a Guinness. And is a Guinness who you love, right? The Guinness. With like mansions and, and lakes oh, and, right. and, and, and children and children that and she children. had. Right. 
Bye bye kids for Sir Oswald Mosley. Now I, I don't have my slideshow here, but if you pulled that picture up, you would be like, what is happening here? I looked him up. Uh, right? What? I mean, Brian was, you know, he was the, literally the cat's meow. I don't know what the cat dragged in was Oswald Mosley. I mean, he was, you know, but more than anything, he was the head of the British <laughs> Union of Fascists. And that, that here's Diana, who's never been particularly political, suddenly rises up and becomes really the first lady of fascism in Great Britain. And unity does not want to be outdone because fascism, of course, has always been her thing. That's her right? thing. Mm -hmm. So she's going to one up it, move to Germany, stalk Adolf Hitler, and she's going to become really, in many ways, the first British lady of Nazism. And by golly, that's what she does. And so you have these unbelievable. Um, events without spoiling way too much um, taking place and these sisters with this unbelievable access leading up to World War II and Nancy who's kind of like what is going on around here wow. I'm so fascinated by how you do that because I mean you know we've you and I have talked about this before I write historical fiction too I mean most of us do or have um and I, it's such a different skill, though, taking absolutely real women and telling their absolutely real stories. But then you get to the the emotions of them so well. It's just I, I, I'm in awe of what you do. Truly, it's it's such an incredible thing. And I can, see how, I can see how hard you work and how how deep you how deep you dig for these characters and these stories and these human emotions it's just it's incredible i love listening to you talk i could listen to you talk all night but um you know letting us take a look you, you let us take a look behind the curtain with these three sisters which i think is one of your incredible skills that you bring to the page so in this book we can see the fine and cracked lines between betrayal and loyalty right with the sisters so without a spoiler in the end nancy admits that she might have either seen things wrongly or unfairly um and it's very clear that despite her own beliefs she found it difficult to act against her sisters yeah. so with such varying views like you were just talking about which sister did you find the most difficult to write? And was there one sister that you, who you found a little bit easier to write than the others? Oh my gosh, such a good question. Um, you know, Diana and Unity were both very difficult for slightly different reasons, right? With um, Unity writing her, she has, that, and this is not a spoiler, um, I don't think, she has so many scenes with Hitler. And the way in which she looks at him just with complete adoration was extremely difficult to do. Um, you know, to, to have, even for a couple sentences to pick this monster of a human being, if he's even a human being, um, in, in a positive light, in a charming way, at a tea party. I mean, that, that was very difficult. To do it, I relied so extensively on the letters. Um, a lot of those teas and um, operas and, and, and the different scenes I depict actually come directly from Unity's letters describing those events. Um, I don't think I could have just made that up out of there because it's just, he's so horrific, right? Um, and yes. I could have conjured that. Um, Diana was really difficult to write for a different reason. She didn't have that, that unbridled adulation for Hitler that you see in Unity. But the, sh the shrewd calculation and manipulation and exploitation of family members was really hard for me to, for oh. me to, you know, I'm super, super tight with my siblings. 
And and I, I could never ever in 10 million years even approach some of the things that Diana does. So th those two were very different for very difficult for very different reasons. Nancy was um, the easiest, but she, even then, she's not always easy. Sometimes she can be so terribly snarky. And <laughs> <laughs> Now, my younger siblings would probably say there was a time when I was <laughs> older sister, but um, I would definitely say I'd never, uh, hopefully never tread on some of the really terrible grounds that Nancy tread on. But I do feel like she, she has an evolution throughout the story. She maybe starts in one place and ends somewhere else. And so I, I was able to kind of get through some of those darker times, knowing that, that there was going to be some growth there. That's awesome. You know, this story is so fascinating in so many different ways. And really, um, Marie, I think what you need to do is lead a um, tour, a Mitford tour around England. Yes. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> and, have, and have friends to join. And have friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that kind of level. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I visited, I have a friend who's cuckoo obsessed with the Mitfers, and I told you that. And so she took me to Chatsworth House, which is, is, is Deborah the youngest sister? Yes. And I didn't Debo. even know her. Debo, yeah. right. Debo. Um, she, she's the youngest. She, she doesn't figure as prominently in the story because no. she's so much younger when these events transpire. But I do think she is a great example of how siblings become what they become in spite of or because of the right. Others. Right. And you know, so that that brings me exactly to the question I want to ask you. And it's not about the Mitfords as much as you. It's a, I mean, you have said, or maybe I read, I don't know, somebody said, you oh said it in your author note that each Nancy's novels are a stand-in for her upbringing. So a lot of us believe that every book we write mm -hmm. changes us in some way. Yeah. Do you feel that this book changed you in any way or that your past, most previous books changed you? Well, this, that will definitely, each book I think has changed me in different ways. And, and in part, because I think I choose the topics yeah. or because I'm looking to sort of sift through that issue myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. In this book, I think, you know, I think I very naively used to believe that people arrived at their political beliefs without any judgment about what they are, I think I used to think that people arrived at those beliefs through an ideological um, sense, right? Like they, they thought that, oh, well, this belief system, this political belief system espouses something that, that feels very true to me. But in fact, I think processing these sisters and the way in which they find themselves in these, I mean, I, I let me get into Jessica with her communism, um, these different political movements, in each of their cases, it really, really seemed to be something personal that drove them to those those belief systems, not something political in and of itself. And I think that really opened up my eyes to the fact that a lot of um, people's political beliefs are born from that sense, that it's something else that's happening to them or around them. And that, that helped me understand people a little bit better, in some cases, maybe more empathetic. Um, I think it maybe will allow me to have some um, better understanding and conversations with people around it. So, so that was really helpful for me. Um, the personal librarian, for example, you know, I had a complete, uh, that was like a, a life transformation, writing that book with Victoria, right. um, where it just where, kind of where I came out in my understanding of, of race and racism and um, 
roles and history and how we ended up where, where we are uh, changed completely as a result of that. So each book is a little bit different in that way. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I feel very fortunate. I get to explore each and, you know, I get to pick a topic and a woman and a time period that, that helps me process and understand something. Yes. Yep. Do you think there's a way to remain loyal to somebody without supporting their ideas and beliefs? I do. And I think that's one of the things that um, I pose in the book for readers to ask themselves, where's the line? You know, I think for each of us, there's a line and um, I will tolerate or turn a blind eye to your beliefs up to this point. But once you, once you've hit this precipice, that's it no longer. And, and then what you choose to do with it is different, you know, whether it's just not have that person in your life or whether take specific action. And that's the line that Nancy comes up to, right? Um, and when the stakes, uh, when the road takes a certain turn and she has to make a choice. Um, and so for me also that, that thinking about her line and getting frustrated with her that it's not sooner or, or a little bit later, um, that helped me understand kind of my own, my own line. Yeah. I mean, the past times we've come through so polarizing, so to so many families. And I, and I felt that personally with my, with my own family. And I yeah. think there are a lot of families out there that have, have been polarized and have just decided, you know, this is, we, we have to, you either say I'm done or you say, okay, we're not discussing this. Right. Exactly. And and that's a perfectly acceptable way to address that. Like I, I love this person. I want to maintain a friendship or a familial relationship with them. And this particular area that, that my line's not there. That's okay. You can hold your belief and I'll hold mine. Yeah. Um, I think the problem becomes is when our lines are different. My line is different than my sibling's line. And then, you know, then it becomes well, especially when yeah. it's a line as, as big as well, Hitler. Right. I mean, like, yeah. like that's there's there's thin lines that we all have, and then there's yeah. Hitler, and Hitler. There's Hitler, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's where you know there are points when you're writing historical fiction. I'm sure you guys have been there, and you have the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, you just kind of want to shoot the characters and say, "Run!" or "He's yeah. in the house," or whatever, whatever it yeah. is. The voice is coming from inside. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, knowing what we know about Hitler now, of course, we can we can look at Unity and say, yeah. "What on earth are you doing?" But at the same time, she does start to learn things, and that that was another yeah. thing I was interested in is um, when you have a political figure like Hitler, like they they might have adhered to certain aspects of his beliefs, but what is it that they did when they started to know what was going to happen with the concentration camps? Yes. Should they have cut and run at that point? Should they have stood up to him? It, you know. Is that acceptable to turn a blind eye to if you can abide by certain of the beliefs over here? So that was another question that, you know, I hope readers ask themselves as they, as they kind of, although, I mean, it's Hitler. It's, it's clear, you know, there's no, that's a deal we know what we know. Yeah. That's a deal yeah. breaker. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a deal breaker. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Swipe <laughs> left. <laughs> okay so marie you have made i'm going to kind of change gears to your career because you've made a few transitions every single one of us on here has yeah but you went from law to writing you wrote ya you wrote 
a historical fiction novel about one of my favorite women of history, Bridget of Ireland. And now you're writing, I mean, I'm kind of obsessed <laughs> of Ireland, but, um, and now you're writing historical fiction about very real women in our newsletter. And if y'all aren't subscribing to the newsletter, you are missing like so much great stuff. Yeah. But in the newsletter, you talk about that you didn't even really want to write until you got the idea for your first novel. I think it was called Chrysal Chrysalis? Chrysalis. Chrysalis, yeah. Chrysalis. So a couple things. I want to know, how do you know when it's time to move from one thing to the next? And what is your writing tip that goes over all of those categories? Um, the double so whammy. When it's time to, to move careers and genres, both. Um, yeah. I, if I, you know when you know. I don't. I, this would be like, like love. Yeah, like yeah. love. Um, yeah. I mean, I think like when I when I got that idea for a book, when my, the, for my first book, The Chrysalis, which was again hist history exploring similar themes through a different genre. I mean, I've always kind of written about the same themes throughout all of my books. It's just that I was expressing them in different ways, in different formats. Um, and I think as I kind of move through each, there comes a point when a new idea becomes so fascinating to me, I can no longer stay in the lane I think I've chosen, right? So, you know, I started out doing historical suspense, exploring the little known corners of history. And as I was writing that, I started to become entranced with this these two young adult ideas. And I just couldn't stay in the one lane. I had to get into the other lane. And then once I was in there, I started to be haunted by all that I'd started to create that long list of historical women. And I knew I couldn't stay in those lanes. And so as I look back on sort of the progression of all three of those things, lawyering for a crazy long time, you know, those two other genres, I almost look at all of that as um, they were almost like writing exercises. They were preparation to do what I, I do that. now. You know, because even lawyering, I mean, as a lawyer, I was researching to create, I was a commercial litigator. I was researching to create a narrative to advocate on behalf of a client. Now I research to create a narrative to advocate on behalf of a client. It's a woman. It's not, thank God, a company anymore, but it's the same <laughs> skill set, same, same dedication, same, you know, uncovering every stone, you know, it's all of those skills. And as I kind of worked my way through those other genres, it was like I was leading to the place I was always meant to go, you know? That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So, that. oh, great tip. I totally forgot. Um, I wasn't going to let you forget. But. <laughs> um, tip. Okay, so no matter what genre, so years ago when I first started writing, a really good friend of mine who likes to collect all these little nuggets of information, who's a writer, said, you know, that she had read the scientific study that you should pick particular music to listen to when you're writing a book or a short story, whatever it is you're writing, and always play that particular music when you are about to transition into writing that. And apparently there's all these studies, brainwaves, all this stuff. Um, and so I tried it, right? And it, honest to God, does work, at least for me. So wow. way back with my I love that. different genres and these books, Sometimes I know exactly what the music will be. Sometimes I have to play around to kind of find it. Um, but then I usually have either one soundtrack or two, depending on what I'm writing. And those will become kind of the, they help me transition much more quickly into wow. what I'm writing. 
and conjure up the I time. I love that. It's like it opens That's the door awesome. to the rabbit hole or something. Yeah, it, 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 that's like, I'm right back to where I left off the day before. Otherwise, if I don't have the music, it's sensory, I can't. Right? Yeah. So what's the soundtrack for this book? You can't leave us hanging. Okay, so you're gonna think I'm nuts because it, it's it's sometimes we it's already do no because it's I, I get that like you're listening to something random and it makes you think of something else and it's like why did that bring that up? Right. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes it's yeah. very deliberate. So in this case, um, for a lot of it, I listened to Glenn Gould, who was a pianist. I can't even remember what time period, but not our time period. And they're like kind of his interpretations on classical for some of them and then for the other especially diana sections i listened to halsey if you guys know halsey yeah yeah in particular the soundtrack i'm not a woman i'm a god oh, oh that's amazing oh. okay cool like that is diana she believed it. she wasn't just a woman she was a she was a god by god and that's how she kind of approached her life and did the things that she did. So, so and cool. it's different for every, for every book. Oh, wow. Okay. So Marie Fabulous. and all of you listening, we have more to talk about with Marie. Plus we have an incredible after show with Eleanor Shearer coming to us straight from the UK. And you are not going to want to miss her to talk about her debut river sing me home, which Marie and Kristen have been raving about really um, backstage, but we're taking a moment for station identification. Okay, am I the only one who's old enough to remember when TVs did that? Nope, I'm sorry. I remember, do you remember that. You yeah. do, Marie, right? Yes, yeah, of course. Station identification. Right. That's I, I a real say, thing. I have never heard thing. that. You have never heard that? Okay, I'm going to go find it somewhere. Anyway, you know we don't just love talking about books. We actually love to also write them. So all four of us have new books out this year. We don't know why Mary Kay just disappeared. I think there <laughs> she is. So, she didn't like the writing Patty, and so she left. Forget about that music. She's not a woman. She's a god. She can do what <laughs> she wants. She remembered. Marie reminded her. All right. So all four of us have new books out this year. A heck of a reading year, my friends. So oh, if you want to be one of the first to get signed first editions, we have a Friends and Fiction first edition subscription. Available right now from the Indie Bookstore, Booktown, and Manasquan, New Jersey. And this subscription and first edition package features a signed first edition hardback edition. Yeah, I said edition. <laughs> from each of us, a friends and fiction towel that says dinner can wait. It's time for friends and fiction. It's so cute. I, I kind of want a couple of them. And you can order can right now at booktown.com and booktown with an E at the end. And you know, we aren't just together virtually and i ho hope that i will be with you virtually and in person my laptop <laughs> my laptop is haunted i'm sorry we have all these live in-person events coming up you'll always read about them in our newsletters and on our individual websites but for a quick recap we will all be together in columbus ohio on april 26 then again in charleston south carolina at buxton books on may 1st to celebrate the launch of patty's novel the secret book of flora lee you can even start buying tickets right now as that ticketing link is already live on the Buxton Books website. The VIP tickets are nearly sold out, but I happen to know that there are some other tickets. Yeah. <laughs> 
So we have also scheduled my June launch involving all of us for the Paris Daughter. It'll be on the day the book comes out, which is June 6th. It'll be in Huntsville, Alabama, and it'll be with the independent bookstore and event uh, event uh, group Snail on the Wall. So tickets are not quite live yet, but we do know the date, June 6th. We know the time, 6.30. We know the city, Huntsville, Alabama. So if you feel like you're interested in coming to see all four of us, save the date. We will let you know both here in, and in our newsletter just as soon as those tickets are on sale. And then I'm excited to say that the four of us will be in Tampa, Florida in July for my launch of the Summer of Songbirds. And so next week I'll be announcing all of the details. So don't miss it, but um, just plug in your mind, you know, if you're near Florida, um, that might be a good event for you. So we'll have a fourth Friends in Fiction live event in the fall for Mary Kay's Bright Lights Big Christmas out September 26th. So there's more info to come on all these live events. So make sure that you're signed up for our Friends in, in our Friends and Fiction newsletter and for each of our individual newsletters too. Okay, Marie, how about you and events? Do you have some events coming up? Oh and where goodness. would people find my events? They're posted all on my website, authormariebenedict.com. Also posted on my Instagram and Facebook accounts, Marie Benedict. Um, and I've, I'm up and down the North Carolina, South Carolina coast this week. Litchfield's event. I'm doing East Shaver in Savannah tomorrow. Um, oh, my gosh. So many uh in, I have an event in Sumter. Um, and then next week I head to, um, I have a great couple of great events in Pittsburgh, Riverstones books. Um, and then I'll be in, I'm doing an event, Orange County, no, yeah, Orange County Reads. It's in California. And that'll be in St. Louis. And it's just everywhere. Oh I my mean, gosh. It's all on your website. We, it's all on my website. It's all on the remember all those things. So <laughs> it's a lot of stuff, but lots of opportunities. If you want to hear me come chat. Do you have to think about it like a day at a time? Like, yes. this is what I'm doing tomorrow. This yes. is what I'm doing tomorrow. That's what I have to do. Or I get really like overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. And I forget. And I'll be like, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. What event is this? Where am I going? Where am I? <laughs> you woke up. What do I get on? Do <laughs> you need my PowerPoint? Because I have all different presentations that I give depending upon the conversation or it's just me. Wow. So oh it all varies. So. Yeah. Marie, it is always such a pleasure spending love time you, with you. So Thank you so you. much. Goodbye. You guys be safe out there. Be thank safe you out so there. much. And thank you so much to all of you wishing you guys. I'm sure I'll be out there for some of your launch events, but in advance, just wishing you the safest, happiest, healthiest stretch until then. Thank, thank you. We love Thanks, Marie. You we too. Love you. you too. <laughs> Okay, now everybody out there, don't move an inch because we have a simply amazing after show with Eleanor Shearer. This is a book you're going to want to know about, trust me. But for that, we just want to give you a heads up about something. Yeah, you might have seen this on Instagram or Facebook or somewhere today, but Barnes & Noble is having a huge sale on pre-orders of books. So you can get all of our upcoming releases for 25% off now through January 27th. All four of our new books are a part of this offer. So if you're ready to pre-order and you haven't done it on other platforms yet, head on over to bnn.com and use code pre-order25 at checkout. Okay, we'll see you in a minute for the after show with Eleanor. And I have a feeling Marie might want to pop in too because she loved Eleanor's book. So don't forget, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We live there every week, just like we do on Facebook. 
And if you subscribe and hit the little bell on YouTube, you'll be notified and you won't miss a thing. And we will see you in about less than 30 seconds. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. That was such a great show. I, I honestly, I could listen to her for hours. It's like, I'm just so fascinated at how her process works. And she's so nice. Yeah, yeah that's great. What a pleasure of a guest. All right. Yes. Well, we are very excited um, to also chat with Eleanor Shearer, um, who, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Marie and I both had the, the opportunity to blur. We both loved her book. Um, we're thrilled to see the success she's been having so far uh, with it, and we're excited to bring her on. Pat, do you want to start with her introduction? Yeah, I'd love to tell you a little bit about her before we bring her on. So Eleanor is a mixed-race writer and the granddaughter of the Wind rush generation immigrants which i read about this week when i knew she was coming on and it's we'll talk about it but what a kind of horrifying but amazing ex story but the name for the generation of people who arrived in the uk between 1948 and 1971 from the caribbean countries for her master's degree in politics at the university of <laughs> oxford eleanor studied the legacy of slavery and the case for reparations and her field work in St. Lucia, St. Lucia? Lucia. Lucia. Yeah. St. Lucia and Barbados helped inspire her debut novel. She currently works for a think tank and she splits her time between London and Ramsgate on the English coast so that she never has to go too long without seeing the sea. I love that. River mm -hmm. Sing Me Home is her debut novel, and it's set to be released here in the States on January 31st. It's the story of a mother's desperate journey across the Caribbean to find her stolen children in the aftermath of slavery. First in Barbados, then deep into the forest of British Guiana. Is that how you say it? British Guiana? Mm -hmm. And finally across the sea to Trinidad. I had a chance to read it early for a blurb, as I said, and I called it at the time both a powerful ode to the endless depths of a mother's love and an important meditation on what freedom really means. The kind mm -hmm. of books that the kind of book that will stay with you for years to come. So I stand by that. It's fantastic. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to talk about it. I know Maria is too. Alan, can you bring Eleanor and Marie on, please. Hi, Eleanor. Welcome. Hi, Eleanor. And welcome back, Marie. <laughs> I crashed in your party, Eleanor. I'm really sorry here. Oh, no, it's so nice to see you. <laughs> well, Marie, we know you can't stay. You, can you stay? Can you stay about 10 minutes or you have to Absolutely. dash off to an event? Yes, I can stay oh. about 10 minutes. Eleanor, I just loved your book, I think, as you know. And um, I just, when I heard you were going to be doing um, the show with the ladies after, I was just wanted to be part of it. I hope that's okay. <laughs> we, Marie, do you want to ask her? I know you probably have something after reading it. Do you have something you want to ask her? I do. I, you know, I'm always interested in how authors arrive at the stories that they want to tell. Um, for me, there's usually some sort of thing I'm working through or something that sparks that. I'd love for you to share, because it's a little bit in your, I think your authors know, but I'd love for you to share how you came to this really powerful, incredible story in River Sing Me Home. Mm. Yes. Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I hope my audio is okay. Uh, can you all hear me? Fine. Yes. It's soft. So if you want to. I wonder if you just move my microphone a little bit closer. Oh, oh, there, oh yeah, yeah, you're good. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. I was trying to keep it very artfully out of the shot so you don't see how the sausage is made. But um, I'll just <laughs> right all of it. ours are showing. We got things dangling <laughs> yeah, off us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And hello from um, very dark uh, late night England. But uh, oh, thank, you. Uh, thank you, Marie, for asking about the origins of River Sing Me Home because it is a very special story. So it's almost. 10 years ago now, back in 2013, when I was a teenager, I went to this exhibition in the UK and it's about slavery in the Caribbean, but particularly resistance to slavery in the Caribbean. So um, the whole point was that in the UK, certainly we learn about slavery as this bad thing that happened in the British colonies. But then there were these white people that realized it was bad and they gave the slaves their freedom, which is just not doing justice at all to the agency of enslaved people who were constantly resisting slavery in ways large and small, you know, from the Haitian revolution through to everyday acts of resistance. And as part of this exhibition, there was this little panel that said after emancipation in the Caribbean we know that lots of women tried to find their families again and I just found this so powerful because one of the things that slavery was trying to do above all was destroy people's right to a family you know people would be brought over they would be given new names and denied that connection with their ancestry but then they would also be living with the constant fear and threat of their children being taken away from them so I thought that the incredible courage to have been through all that and then to say, I refuse to let my family stay broken, I'm going to put the pieces back together again, was just such a testament to the, yeah, to, to the incredible power of these, these Caribbean women. So 10 years or so, well, it was about eight before I started writing the book, I kind of sat with this, this little kernel of an idea um, and knew that I wanted to make it more widely known that there were women that really did this and really did try to put their families back together again after the end of slavery. Oh, well, it is such a moving story and the tenacity of your character and the way in which she really brings the reader along on this harrowing journey is just, it's, it's really an important story. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you. <laughs> So, Eleanor, this came out of some field work you did for your master's degree. Is that correct? Yes. So um, it, it's funny because I did the master's completely separately and it was only after I'd finished it that I realized how useful it would it would be for this novel idea that I'd, I'd had sitting, sitting, kicking around for, for ages. Um, I uh, did history and politics as an undergraduate here in the UK and then I went on to do a master's in political theory and I was looking at the uh, legacy of slavery in the Caribbean and the case for reparations and I was focusing particularly on the idea of like how slavery is is remembered and how the damage that it left on the Caribbean is not just sort of material, it's not just about economics, it's also about a psychic damage and kind of lasting pain that can echo through the generations. And I, I've got family in Barbados and in St Lucia, so I went out to those islands and I was interviewing family members, I was wow. interviewing historians, I was interviewing wow. reparations activists. And what really struck me about those conversations was just how differently they spoke about slavery to the way that I'd heard about it spoken, heard it spoken about in the UK, the way that they really wanted to foreground the resistance. You know, one of my mother's cousins was proudly telling us in St Lucia that he lived on land that used to be used by runaway slaves. So just always wanting to celebrate the ways that people resisted. Um, and yeah, it was after doing that fieldwork that I realised I've now got such a strong foundation in understanding uh, all of the 
various contexts of Caribbean slavery and this this idea that had always intimidated me a bit because I thought it would require so much detailed historical research and that's what put me off starting it. It was only after I finished the master's that I realised, oh, there, there's the research and there's the foundation <laughs> for this specific. About what would I need? It's it's sitting here in the palm of my hands. Eleanor, it's so good to see you on the show. When you, I'm dying to know because I, we've all been in academic um, milieus before we were writing novels. I'm trying to imagine what their response was. Was there any pushback from the academic community when you decided to turn it into a novel? And how, you know, you've explained why you think it was the right path, but did they encourage it or, or try to keep the academic separate from the fictional? It's a great question. I actually, because I was sort of quite firmly out of academia when I started writing the novel, Uh, I think there wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, um, it wasn't clear from the beginning that this was something that I was going to do and actually uh, I had a lovely launch party my book came out in the UK last week and my two two of my uh, professors from Oxford came down who'd both been really integral to my master's and they were both incredibly complimentary so I think that lots of individual people were very supportive along the journey but um, I know it it is always it's always funny I actually find that it's almost like two separate hats that I have to wear that I find I can't get too much into historian mode. I, I find this, I, I've um, started another, uh, working on a second project now, and I, I almost have to stop myself doing too much research before I let the story guide me. Because if I just, I could spend months and months, but the more kind of historical documents I read, the more history books I read, I start getting that academic sensibility that actually I find does not help me write a novel. And so at some point I just have to say, you know what? Details could be filled in afterwards. I need yes. this story to guide me and I need to write this manuscript and let the story be the, the main thing. And then, yeah, the research can come later. Yeah, it's such a struggle. Oh. Yeah. Everyone's like, seriously, no, I've only written one, you know, partly historical novel, but I've I totally get and these ladies have written many many but but I'm like yes I remember that feeling of like okay I can't stuff every single like fact and detail and still make Mm -hmm. this a story like this I gotta Mm -hmm. stop (laughs) stop doing it stop doing it um but as you mentioned your book was published last week in the UK congratulations and the observer noted the harsh world of slavery is the backdrop but the heart of this novel lies in its celebration of motherhood and female resilience. Can you talk to us a bit about that thread of female resilience that runs so powerfully through this book? And why was that important to you to include? And do you agree with that um, assessment of your story? Yeah, I was so thrilled with that review because exactly what I was trying to do with this book is, is describe not the world of slavery but what came after you know I have a huge amount of respect and time for art that is about slavery directly that kind of looks all of the horrors in in the face but for me I would have found something like that incredibly traumatic to write and so I always knew that it's very deliberate that the book literally starts with the moment that Rachel leaves her plantation because it is about what comes after and how you can build a life for yourself after everything you've been through so I didn't want to shy away from the fact that slavery is going to cast a long shadow over the novel and over the actions of its character uh, of the characters. But it was always to me important to write something that was ultimately uplifting. And um, as you pointed out about female resilience and um, I guess 
I really appreciate the kind of recognition that, that Rachel has received, not least because her story is historical. You know, she's based on not just the true stories of women that we know really did make these journeys, but in particular, there's one woman who features in an oral history text called To Shoot Hard Labour, which is about the life of this man called Samuel Smith, who was born in Antigua in the 1870s, but because he lived to be 103, he was able to tell his his grandchildren his story in, in the 1970s. Um, but he talks about his great-great-grandmother, I think it is, Mother Rachel. So Rachel is, is named in her honour, and Mother Rachel walked from the south of Antigua to the north of the island island to um, find her daughter um so Rachel draws on that but she also draws on women in my own life so particularly my mother stories of my grandmother who I never got to meet by my step-grandmother as well and my aunt and these wonderful black women in my life who are so resilient but also just so wonderful loving kind tender they you know they contain the full spectrum of human emotion which I think is not always I, I was very cognizant when I was writing the book there are a lot of damaging stereotypes out there about black women and I wanted to have a character that is is nuanced and has she she's strong and she's resilient but she's not just strong and resilient she's um mm. contains multitudes so yeah I'm 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 very fond of Rachel I'm so excited to see that people are, are connecting with her as well that gave me chills when you said that she contains multitudes. Yeah, so yeah. that should be multitudes. Wow. Jolene, is this, is this your oh, debut quick. novel? Yeah. Yes, it is. Oh, that's quick, uh, quick, Quickly, Kathy, before you, or Mary Kay, before you ask your question, I see in the chat Marie's saying that she has to take off. I know she has an event tonight. So we'll quickly say goodbye to Marie. And Marie, thank you thank for sticking you. around. I, yeah, I know you really wanted saying. to say hi. Oh my God. So thank thank you, Marie. Congratulations, Eleanor. It's just oh, so exciting. You. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Marie. Okay, sorry, Kathy, back, back yeah, to you. Okay. <laughs> All right, so since this novel came about in such an unusual way, having stemmed from your academic fieldwork, and you did mention that you're working on a new book, could you talk to us about that? What's, what's coming up? Yes, um, it's very early days, so I don't know how detailed I'm going to be able to be, but I think that I really love that that sense of a book growing out of the, the a kind of kernel of truth but particularly these stories from black history and caribbean history that aren't that well known and so i was reading a um history book about the abolition of slavery in um in the british empire and it had this detail about how um there were these runaway communities in Jamaica and there was a group in particular that got exiled for trying to start an insurrection and they ended up in Nova Scotia in Canada. And the idea of the complete dissonance between the Caribbean landscape and the Canadian landscape just really struck me. And I, in particular, I love books that are able to thread together kind of places in the world that you don't think of as connected at a particular time. I feel like we learn history in these really siloed ways where you think of British history and you think of American history and you don't necessarily think of the people that would have connected the, the dots. And so the idea of being able to write about this um, this connection between these two unlikely places really excited me. So yeah, I'm working on a book that's going to be set in Nova Scotia about these exiled Jamaican Maroons trying to make a new life for themselves. Incredible. Has the publication of this book changed the way you think about the ways that history can be shared with the world? That's a great question. I think I've been really delighted so far with how people have connected with the book and connected with Rachel's story. But I think I was always 
an optimist about the power of fiction. So I guess it hasn't surprised me. It's more just kind of reinforced a belief that I already had because as a reader myself, I've been touched by so many wonderful stories. You know, I, I know um, it was mentioned in the introduction that uh, I come from and descended from the Windrush generation. And uh, there's a novel called Small Island by a writer called Andrea Levy that had a huge effect on me. Um, was one of the I think best portrayals of the kind of Windrush experience but also not just for people of Caribbean heritage but that book is incredibly important to lots of people in in Britain and really I think brought the Windrush experience to wider British attention and so having models like that when I was writing I, I knew that it was possible to sort of change people's minds and hearts with with fiction and I just hoped that I would get the chance to do that with my novel as well. It kind of loops back to what our first Amazing. question when we talked about the things that we that are we are so surprised by when we read historic fiction stuff, you know, windows we never we could never see through until we read started reading historic fiction. Yeah. Mm. Well, this was a deeply affecting book for me, Eleanor. I, I loved it. it. It's astonishing that it's your debut. You write it with, uh, you wrote it just with such mastery and and such command of these characters and the journey they're on. So, um, good for you. We're so excited to get a chance to know you tonight. I have the feeling your book is going to be everywhere in the month to come. We're so excited to see what happens for you. Can you tell us where readers can find you online and maybe even in person? Yes. So my um, Instagram and Twitter handles are both Eleanor B. Shearer and I've also got a website eleanorshearer.com so find me there on the website you can sign up for my monthly newsletter um in person I'm actually coming to the United States in a couple Yay! of weeks which is very exciting Yay! um so uh keep an eye out on my social media as events get confirmed but I know that on Monday the 6th of February I will be in Boston at the Harvard Bookstore doing an in-person event and I'm so excited to get the chance to come and meet uh, American readers so yeah please do keep an eye out for me there. Oh we're Wonderful. so glad and we hope some of our viewers tuning in tonight will be able to come see you on the road wouldn't that be great? Uh -huh. I have a feeling they're gonna come find Oh they you. will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Eleanor, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to get to know you. We're thrilled for you. And we wish you all of, just all the best with this debut novel and with your tour and all the wonderful things to come. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank Very you. Pleasure. And to everyone out there, that is it for us. Tune in next Wednesday when we'll be joined by one of your favorites and one of our favorites, Pam Jenoff with her newest World War II novel, Codename Sapphire. Have a great night. Good night, Good night everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.